Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you today. We are packed again. Uh, Rob told me last week that uh, first time ever we have had over 3,000 people on campus three weeks in a row. And so uh, that's really exciting, and I'm, I'm humbled by it. And yeah, you can clap that. And so uh, welcome. We are so uh, glad you're here. Now, um, I want to pick up on what Matt and Johnny uh, did last week when they talked about their sum, uh, summer uh, vacations. And so I want to kind of introduce you to our vacation. This is the whole Boyd family. We had a great time at the beach this summer. And there's three kids, three spouses, eight grandkids. And all those kids look so sweet and so clean and so pressed Well, about 30 minutes later, we went for ice cream, and those outfits were covered in chocolate and rainbow-sprinkled ice cream, and ice cream was the price we had to pay to get them to smile for the picture. And um, then we went on another family vacation with uh, Callie's family, and there's a video clip of me riding the water slide with my granddaughter, Charleston. You'll notice, first of all, Brittany, baby Brittany comes down. She rode all the rides with us and she came first and then here comes Charleston and me. And so, um, yeah, it was amazing that uh, that's about the 32nd time that she and I had ridden that ride. And uh, it's always, again, granddaddy, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, It was so much fun. And, And, you know, I was thinking in contrast to Matt's frowny face vacation pictures um, last week, I want you to know, in contrast to that, I really had a great time. So there's me. Uh, I, I just, I, I, I love my vacation time. So anyway, now if this is your first time here, welcome. We are glad you've chosen to worship with us. We know there's lots of places in town that you could, you could worship, but you chose to come here. And so thank you so much. Uh, we have a team of people out in the commons area, outside these doors, uh, at the guest services desk, and uh, you can ask them any questions you want uh, about who we are, why we are, and what we're all about, and uh, there'll be friendly people there that can answer those questions. And if you are, if this is your first time, I want you to know, one of the things that we want you to know about us is that if you attend here on a regular basis, uh, what you'll find is that most of the time, most often, we are teaching, preaching our way, studying our way through whole books of the Bible or long sections of Scripture. And this is a great day to be here because we're kicking off a new series that we've entitled Seven, What the Spirit is Saying to the Churches, which is a study of the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And it is revelation, not revelations. It's singular, not plural. Now, when we open the book of Revelation... Go ahead and, uh, and do that. Open your Bible, paper, or digital. Find your way to Revelation 1. <clears throat> I know for many of you, the minute that I say we're going to be in a study of the book of Revelation, your heart starts beating faster, your mind runs off in all kinds of different directions because you're hoping that I will decipher all the strange and bizarre images that make this book hard to understand. And it's true. When you start reading this book, you step into a a strange, unfamiliar world of angels and demons and lions and lambs and horses and dragons and seals are broken and trumpets are blown and the contents of seven bowls are are poured out and then two uh, particularly malicious, malevolent beasts appear, one coming up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and the other rising from the earth 
with a lamb's horns and a dragon's voice and there's thunder and lightning and hail and fire and plagues and blood and smoke and the whole book is like this chaotic mess of weird, mysterious uh, visions. And for the most part, sorry to disappoint you, but we're not going to get into much of that. We're gonna focus on the first three chapters in which the Holy Spirit, speaking through Christ himself, speaks to seven ancient churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. That's our focus, what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So we won't be getting into who the Antichrist is or whether the beast is an alien or an AI robot or an alien AI robot or what the number 666 is all about. We're not getting into all that, and here's why. The amazing book, this amazing book starts this way. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that aggravates me about end-time Bible teachers, and I'm sure they, they mean well, but end-time Bible teachers, many of them spend so much of their time trying to decipher all the imagery in the book, and they pontificate about timelines, and they speculate on how modern-day newspaper headlines are coming true in the pages of Revelation. And for some of them, their whole Christian life is wrapped up in trying to figure out the date when Jesus is coming back. Even though Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour of my return. Only the Father knows that. And, and, and I've even heard end-time Bible teachers say, well, we might not can know the day or the hour, but we can know the month. <laughs> well, Jesus also said to his disciples just before he ascended back into heaven in Acts chapter one, his disciples asked him since he had risen from the dead, they said, is now the time you're gonna set up your kingdom? And, and he said, it's not for you to know the times or the ages, which I think would include months, times and ages, that the Father has set for, by his own authority. It's not for you to know. But yet people ignore all of this to speculate about end time events. Now listen, when I was younger, I was into all that. I mean, especially back in the 70s and 80s with book, books like uh, How, How Lindsay, Lindsay's The Late Great Planet Earth and, and then the whole uh, best-selling Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Gonna Return in 1988, which I, I, last I checked, he didn't come back. And I used to be into all that. I grew up in Baptist churches and they had revivals and Jesus is Coming Soon prophecy conferences and I was into all that. And there are still certain things in the book of Revelation I like to kind of think about and mull over and speculate on just in my own head and that kind of thing. But really all that changed for me about 20 years ago when I preached a series of 10 messages through the book of Revelation and I noticed one extremely important thing that most people tend to read right over and that one thing is the key to the book, Revelation 1, uh, look for verse 1, look at the first five words. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Of what? Of who? Of Jesus. So if in your study of the book of Revelation you're not overwhelmed by the beauty and the benevolent sovereignty of the risen glorified Jesus, if he is not front and center in your mind and heart, if when you read this book and you study this book, you don't understand more clearly who he really is, then you're totally missing why the Holy Spirit put this book in the canon of Scripture. Put simply, this book is not the speculation of Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus. The revelation of Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ. He is the main character, the central focus of the book. It's a revelation, 
Greek word is an apocalypse, which doesn't mean what it's come to mean in modern day as like the apocalypse is some kind of uh, destructive, catastrophic event coming to the end of the world. It doesn't mean that at all. It means an unveiling, an unveiling of who Jesus is and what he's up to in the world. It's an unveiling of Jesus and his relationship with his church, specifically the local church. It's an unveiling of the cosmic battle that's going on behind the scenes of what we see going on in our world today. It's an unveiling, meaning the imagery, listen, the imagery is not so much meant to be deciphered. And by the way, you can't decipher any of it unless you know your Old Testament, unless you know books like Daniel and Ezekiel and and Exodus. But But the imagery is not so much to be deciphered as it is meant to be taken at surface level to see the reassuring message that Jesus is powerfully ruling and reigning over all that's going on in this world. He is in absolute control, even though sometimes it might not seem like he is. And all this imagery is meant to give us comfort and reassurance, especially to the local churches in parts of our world, and and it's coming here, but in parts of our world where local churches are patiently enduring the pain and suffering that have been brought on by the forces of evil and the forces of the evil one. This book is an unveiling of truths about Jesus that would have remained hidden had God chosen not to reveal them to us. Revelation 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, this is interesting. Look at this. God gave this revelation to Jesus who through an angel made it known to John so that John would pass it on to the seven churches. So it's a five-part chain of communication. God to Jesus to an angel to John and the seven churches. That's really interesting. In, in, In coming weeks, we'll unpack some of that a little bit more. Verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So I get a blessing from reading this aloud, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. By the way, uh, what must soon take place, the time is near, means simply that Jesus could come at any moment. He is near. In other words, he's not off in some far-flung corner of the universe. He's, if we could pull back into another dimension, he is right here, and he could step from there to here anytime, just like that. That's what soon means. That's what the time is near means. Now, Jesus promises us a blessing. So what exactly is that blessing? The blessing is that knowing that God wins in the end. That God wins in the end. It's a blessing of knowing that no matter how bad things get, Uh, um, no matter how dark the days become for God's people, no matter how hopeless things may seem, God wins in the end. But it's better than that. It's God has won already. That's what Revelation shows us. And it's the blessing that if you orient your life around that great truth, 
that Jesus wins in the end, that he's already won, then you're able to experience a peace that surpasses human understanding and that peace empowers you to patiently endure. And even though we don't know the day or the hour or the times or the ages of when Jesus is coming back, we do know that he could come back at any moment. So we learn to live with the reality of his soon return in the forefronts of our hearts and minds and we order our lives around that great truth. Verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, I'm not gonna unpack the seven churches today. I'm gonna do that next week uh, when we get to the first church. But suffice it to say that John is writing to seven first century churches that are in modern day Turkey. We'll come back to that. He begins, grace to you and peace from him who is, who is and who was and who is to come. He's coming. And from the seven spirits, probably uh, the perfect fulfillment, the Holy Spirit, perfect in all his fullness, probably the Holy Spirit who is before his throne, verse five, and from Jesus Christ, look how he's described, the faithful witness, in other words, when he came here, he faithfully revealed what God is really like, and he's the firstborn from the dead, meaning that all who trust him for salvation will follow him. They will be raised. You and I will be raised from the dead. And the ruler over the kings of the earth, he rules over everything, as Eugene Peterson says, from galaxies to governments. The whole trinity is involved here. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. Now look how John further describes who Jesus is. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, he has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and, and even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, that is the gospel right there. Jesus loves us. Did you know this is the only place in the Bible where it tells us that Jesus loves us, present tense, Everything else is, talks about Jesus loved us. He loves us and, present tense, and he died for our sins so we could be free from the penalty of sin and free from the guilt of sin and free from the power of sin over our lives. And in doing so, Jesus has made us to be a kingdom of priests. In other words, he saved us for a purpose, a priestly purpose, meaning that like Jesus, we are to act as mediators between God and people and people and God, inviting them to come to know the Jesus we've come to know. And so we patiently endure the worst that this world and the evil temporary ruler of this world throws at us because we look forward to the soon coming, the end at any time moment of return of Jesus. Behold, he's coming in the clouds. And that is that glorious day when Jesus comes in the clouds, bringing judgment on, on all who have lived in rebellion against God. That day when he comes to right all wrongs and, and to remake the world into what he's always wanted from the very beginning. So this book is not about end time speculation, or it shouldn't be. No, this book is a revelation of Jesus reminding us of who he is and what he's done and what he's coming to do in the future. Verse nine, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom 
and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's on this island, exiled to this island about 10 miles off the coast of western Turkey. He's exiled to this island because he's been preaching the gospel. That's what the word of God is and the testimony of Jesus. And John tells the people in the congregation to which he's writing, I am your brother in Christ. Now, he's an apostle, all the rest, and he's the only one that's still alive. They're all dead. He's the last of the apostles, but he doesn't play his apostle card here. He, says, he identifies with them, and he says, I'm your brother. I'm in the fight with you. I am suffering with you. I am patiently enduring persecution with you. I am your partner in tribulation. Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And it is this revelation of Jesus right here that gives us a vision of the risen, glorified Jesus who was and is and will overcome. And it is keeping our focus on this Jesus right here and staying faithful, that's the way that we do overcome. Now, I have to say that the tribulation John talks about here is something that most of us don't really know anything about. We are an absolutely self-absorbed, narcissistic, consumer-oriented culture that runs on immediate gratification, and it manifests itself in all kinds of addictions and compulsions and anxiety and debts. We think of tribulation as missing a flight at the airport or having things break down around the house or having a pimple on our nose or having a friend talk bad about us to another friend not getting something we pray for. We think of tribulation in terms of unmet expectations and unfulfilled desires of not having our best life now. That's not tribulation. John has been in tribulation most all of his life. He's been in and out of prison, beaten numerous times. He was, tradition says he was boiled in oil, but somehow he miraculously survived without a mark on him. And since they couldn't kill him, the the authorities exiled him to Patmos, a kind of modern-day Guantanamo Bay, which meant that he had lost his home, his income, his family, his friends, and the people in the churches he loved. Mark it down. Following Jesus requires perseverance, or as John calls it here, patient endurance, both of which means remaining faithful to Jesus when the pressure, when the heat is on. And look, look at this. He tells us how we persevere. Verse 9, we patiently endure in Jesus. In Jesus. Jesus persevered for us through rejection, opposition, suffering, and death. And he has come and taken up residence in us by the Holy Spirit. And so perseverance is made possible because of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We are in him and he is in us. And that's how John persevered in Jesus. And he's been persevering a long time. At this point in his life, he's been persevering about 70 to 80 years. The man is pushing 100. And now he's exiled and he continues to persevere. Amazes me. He doesn't doubt God. He doesn't disown God. He's not disappointed in God. 
He doesn't question God. I mean, he knew what Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation. I mean, he's gonna actually write that down in his biography of Jesus that's gonna follow this book. John is suffering physically. He suffered financially. He's suffering emotionally and relation, relationally cut off from the people he loves. And he's, and he's suffering spiritually because he's not able to use the gifts that God has given him to move the mission of Jesus forward in the world. And he's on this island He's all by himself, suffering in every conceivable way uh, possible on account of the gospel, and, and he, that's what he calls tribulation. And he's telling us here, it's gonna continue until we see Jesus coming in the clouds. Push pause. There's a false gospel being preached today in American Christianity that says, if you come to Jesus, he'll take away all your problems and he'll make your life heaven on earth. That's just not true. In Jesus, to use John's language, our life is not tribulation free. Now, you might could say it's tribulation proof in the sense that we, we can patiently endure whatever tribulation, rejection, opposition, and suffering that comes our way through our relationship with Jesus and in relationships with the people of God in the local churches and people who are going through the same kind of thing as we are. We patiently endure with Jesus and his people and that's why the whole context of Revelation 1, 2, and 3 is all about Jesus and his church. We just finished a series called Church Matters. There's no better place to go in all the Bible than Revelation 1, 2, 3 to see the church matters because it matters to Jesus. And when it comes to the tribulation that Jesus said that we would experience in this life, you need to know that it doesn't matter who we elect. It doesn't matter how many wars we fight, how many dollars we spend, how many social agendas we back. Until Jesus returns and the dead are raised, until those who have repelled against God are judged, until Satan and his demons are bound and thrown into the lake of fire, and until that new heaven and the new earth are established here on earth, until that day, there will be trials and troubles and tribulation. In fact, my Bible tells me it's gonna keep getting worse. It's gonna get worse, and don't let that shock you. Instead, let it compel you to persevere, to patiently endure, to hang in there, to never give up or give in. Why not? Because never, Jesus never gives up on you, and because Jesus has it all under control and because he wins in the end. Now, but here's the absolutely amazing thing to me. Even though John is suffering, he is worshiping. Even though he's suffering, he's worshiping, verse 10. It was on, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, he says. Now, after Jesus rose from the dead, Christians began meeting together for worship on the Lord's day, Sunday, the first day of the week, because that's the day when Jesus rose from the dead. I know for many of us, it's literally an act of worship just to get out of bed, get dressed, get the family dressed, get in the car, fight with the kids in the car, fight the traffic getting into the parking lot. It's an act of worship just to get here, to be with God's people. That in and of itself is an act of worship, an act of patient endurance for a lot of us. It's an act of resurrection testimony to get up and go meet with God's people in a place like this, and I commend you for it. So here's John, though. He's in exile. It is Sunday. He can't be with the church he loves. 
And, and he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. We don't exactly know what that means, but he's worshiping. We know that's what it means. Maybe he has some manuscripts of scripture that he's reading. Maybe he's uh, praying. Maybe he's singing. We don't know. May, probably doing all those kinds of things. But what I want you to see is that he was worshiping while experiencing tribulation. In fact, this is how John persevered. This is how he patiently endured suffering and persecution. He worshiped while he was experiencing suffering. And this is so very important because for many of us, when we're suffering, worshiping is the farthest thing from our minds. And for certain, for certain now, when we're suffering, we pray and ask God to take away the suffering, and that's understandable, of course. But praying for God to remove the suffering is not the same as worshiping God in the midst of the suffering. And it may very well be that God doesn't remove the suffering because his desire is to meet you in that suffering, to show up and reveal himself to you in your suffering in a way that you've never experienced And that is certainly what happens here. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. It woke me up immediately saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands And in the midst, in the middle of the lampstands, there was one like a son of man. Now, that comes right out of the book of Daniel. The son of man uh, is is a messianic, kingly title. It was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. He was wearing a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. That's priestly. So right off the bat, Jesus is a king and a priest at the same time. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were like, were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was, face was like, like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, it scared me to death. And I fell down at his feet like a dead man. But he laid his right hand on me and he said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and behold, look, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. I mean, if he has the keys to death and Hades, he has the keys to everything, everything else, right? So he says, verse 19, right. Second time he says, right. Right, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are soon to take place, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. It's the Lord's day and John says he's in the spirit, he's worshiping, he hears a voice. It's a loud voice, like a sound of a trumpet. He says, I turn to see the voice which I love that expression, he turned to see the voice. And I take, it, I take that to mean that John is experiencing something outside himself. He's not having some kind of inner mystical experience. The voice is not inside his head. 
he hears a voice outside his head. He turns to see the voice. And verse 2 says he bore witness to all he saw. So when he turns, he sees something absolutely incredible. So what did he see? Well, he sees a visual image of the risen, glorified Jesus. And he heard Jesus speak a message to him, a message that he was told to write down and send to the seven churches. Listen, John isn't interpreting what he saw except for the stars and the lampstands at the very end. That's the only thing that he interprets for us. But for the most part, he's not gonna tell us the meaning of what he saw. He's not telling us what the imagery symbolizes. Uh, He's simply describing what he saw and it's so incredible, the, what he, the picture of Jesus, the Jesus he sees, goes beyond his ability to explain. So he grabs pictures and images to try to help us get, see the magnitude of what he's seeing and the beauty of what he is seeing. Now this is important. When I say he's not, for the most part, Uh, deciphering or interpreting what he saw. Let me illustrate why this is so important. In chapter five, we meet Jesus Christ as the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. Now, that's just plain weird. I mean, is that how Jesus looks right now? Like if we pull back the curtain or we went to heaven, would we see him as a lamb, a literal lamb, with seven horns and seven eyes? No, no, no. What John saw was the visual image of Jesus that Jesus chose, this is how Jesus chose to reveal himself. Now, here's another example later on in Revelation. We will, uh, uh, when you read later on, you'll see that John says there's uh, some locusts and they are as strong as horses and they have faces like men. And I remember way back uh, an end-time Bible teacher uh, saying, now what John saw, he saw way into the future, and what he saw was a helicopter, like a Sikorsky helicopter. And he didn't know how to describe it, so he said it's like a locust, and as big as a horse, and it had the face of of a man. No, 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 no. John didn't see a helicopter. Jesus put a vision of a terrible swarm of locust in front of him. That's what he saw. It's a, it's a metaphor of plagues. Just read the book of Exodus. Another example is chapter 12. The woman who is a figure of the church and all of her children are being rescued on the wings of an eagle. Another end time Bible teacher said, well, what John saw was this huge United States Air Force jet taking redeemed Jews into the wilderness. No, 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 no. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't show John Uh, an Air Force jet, he showed him an eagle with big wings because in the book of Exodus, it says that God redeems his people like on wings of eagles. All through the revelation, John keeps saying, I saw, I saw, I saw, like uh, he saw. He really did see something. I saw, I saw, I saw. He saw something outside his own head and his own mind, something that Jesus was showing him, him in pictures, in visions like almost like political cartoons. In his most excellent commentary on the book of Revelation, entitled Discipleship on the Edge, Daryl Johnson helps us understand the nature of the imagery in Revelation using old political cartoons. So when you see this political cartoon, uh, what do you see this picture telling you? 
Well, does it help to know that this picture was posted during the time when President Clinton was under the threat of impeachment? Or what about this picture, an American flag unraveling? Now, what is that picture saying? Does it help you to know that the cartoonist titled the picture, Our Moral Fabric? Still relevant today, isn't it? And then one more, how about this picture of a dragon eating a city? What, is, what does that say? Well, it's a city is being threatened by some kind of evil. This cartoon was published July 1st, 1997, the day that Hong Kong reverted back to communist China, and the caption reads, Today Hong Kong, dot, dot, dot. Today Hong Kong, tomorrow, what, the world. So was there a literal elephant walking around in Washington, D.C.? Was the American flag actually unraveling? Is there a dragon that looks like the one in the cartoon lurking somewhere in Asia, ready to eat cities? No. So why does John give us one political cartoon after another in the book of Revelation? Because any letter John would write from the Isle of Patmos to the churches on the mainland would be read by Roman prison guard censors. So the Holy Spirit inspires him to write in a style that Roman authorities will not understand and that they will probably dismiss as the crazy ramblings of a senile old man under stress. Now, so what about this incredible vision of Jesus here? Again, this is not so much an actual physical description of Jesus. It's a description of the character and the kingship of Jesus. He says repeatedly, his hair was like, his eyes were like, his feet were like, his voice was like, his face was like. And get this, this vision is not about how Jesus will become the ruler of the kings of the earth, verse 5. This is a vision how Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth, kings and presidents and dictators. And one of the main purposes of Revelation is to set the present moment, listen, to set the present moment in all of its insecurity and uncertainty and ambiguity, whatever, you know what I'm trying to say. Uh, uh, In all its insecurity, uncertainty, and ambiguity. I'm tired. All right, anyway, it's ambiguous. All right, in light of the unseen realities, listen, not just of the future, but to set the present moment in the midst of the unseen realities of the present. There are pictures of what's going on now. In other words, things are not as they seem. Or more accurately, things are not just as they seem. There's more to this present moment than we can know with our secular eyes and with our earthbound intellect and emotion and imagination. Here, we see the greatest unseen reality of the present And the greatest unseen reality of the present is a person. It's Jesus, the incarnate, crucified, risen, ascended, glorified Jesus who is ruling over all things right now. Now, do you believe that? Does the church in our time believe that? Do Do you believe it when you're watching the news that's got you all upset? The greatest unseen reality of the present is a person. It's Jesus, and John would say to us that unless we believe that, 
and let that truth shape our minds and hearts and lives, we haven't got a clue as to what's going on in our world today. And this appearance of Jesus here on this rock pile prison island of Patmos helps John see that even a prison of suffering can become a sanctuary of worship because Jesus is right there with him. He says in verse 10, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst, in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of God. Now the lampstands he tells us at the end are the churches. John sees Jesus right there with him and right there on Patmos, but Jesus is also showing John that he's right there on the mainland in the midst of all seven of those churches. Jesus is not just above his churches looking down. He's not just outside the churches looking in. He's in the middle of the churches, and he's with them in their suffering and persecution, and he knows all, and he sees all. Do you realize that right here, right now, Jesus is in the middle of this church, in the middle of this gathering. That's what the Spirit is saying to our church now. He's here, and he's ruling over all things, and we need to orient our lives around that truth. Now, for the rest of our time, I want to focus on three main characteristics of this revelation of the greatest unseen reality in the present, this revelation of Jesus. And the first thing I want to focus on is the voice. The voice is the dominant image in the text. The word occurs three times. Verse 10, I heard a loud voice behind me. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice. Verse 15, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Voice is the key to understanding it all. And I think this is Jesus' way of saying that the most essential part of discipleship is listening. Listening to me. In the next two chapters of this book, chapters 2 and 3, John records seven messages that Jesus dictates to the seven churches And they all, all seven churches have one common exhortation, and that is hear. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Seven times, it's about voice. Listen, hear. Now, I want to show you something really, really cool. The centrality of the voice in this description of Jesus is brought out in the way that John describes Jesus' revelation of himself. John uses a literary device common in the first century in the Middle Eastern culture, and it's still common in 21st century Middle Eastern communication and culture. It's a device called, a literary device called a chiasm or chiasm. The word chiasm comes from the Greek word chi, which is an X, our letter X. But scholars have chosen to use the term chiasm to refer to only one side of the X, like you'll see it in a minute. It, like, 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 it looks like a sideways V, like a greater than sign, like geese flying in formation. So we Westerners tend to think in a linear way. We read and write in a straight line. Middle Easterners tend to think in a chiastic way. They read and write in this sideways V, outside in, inside out. So instead of a straight line, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 
they read like this. One, two, three, four, that's the main point. Five, six, seven, and there's a relationship between one and seven, two and six, three and five to make the point of four, all right? So we're not meant to read what John says here about Jesus in a straight line, like head, eyes, feet, voice, hand, mouth, face. If you read in a straight line, the portrait of Jesus just jumps all around and it doesn't make much sense. We're meant to read it chiastically like this, head, eyes, feet, voice, hand, mouth, face. That's the way we're supposed to read. Now, Eugene Peterson in his commentary called Reverse Thunder uh, suggests that the head and face are coupled together because they're like the first and last impressions. Jesus' head, he says, is, uh, John says, is white like wool, like snow. And this is telling us that this one who is in our midst is immensely wise In Daniel chapter seven, he's the ancient of days. That's what's behind this imagery. And Jesus has been around for all eternity and he knows everything there is to know about life. His face shining like the sun in all of its fullness. Now, I don't know how John handled that part of it because the sun is so brilliant it can blind you. But then again, the sun brings warmth. And so this suggests that the one who is in our midst radiates the glory of God. Something like what John and Peter saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. The eyes and the mouth go together because they're organs of relationship. Jesus' eyes are like flames of fire. That's a way of saying that Jesus' eyes are pure and they're purifying and they're penetrating. He sees all. He sees what's on the surface and what's underneath. He sees our actions, and he sees the motives of our heart. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, that that sharp two-edged sword cuts to the division of soul and spirit. And Jesus' words cut that cut to the soul and spirit, digging out the lies in our hearts so that we can know the truth about him and about us. The feet and hands go together because they're parts of body that express capability. His feet are like burnished bronze. Now, bronze is made of iron and copper. Iron rusts, copper bends, but you blend them together and and they're strong and steady and solid and firm, a firm foundation. Burnished means his feet are hot uh, from the furnace. And, and wherever he walks, he brings purification. And in his hand, he holds seven stars. Now, these turn out to be angels. I'm gonna talk about that next week. But right here, they also refer to the seven stars or planets that ancient people felt ruled the world. Now, you see this in this image of a Roman coin from about this time. You see, baby Caesar sits on top of the world deified as God, and there are seven stars around him, meaning that Caesar is Lord, and he rules and reigns over all, including the universe. This is an image, right? This is what Revelation is giving us, pictures like this. But Jesus counters that image by saying that whatever cosmic or governmental or ecclesiastical or personal powers there are in the world, He holds all the powers in his right hand. Quite literally, he has the whole world in his hands. And then finally, the voice. 
that was like the sound of many waters, a voice that, was able, that is able to drown out all the other voices that are clamoring for our attention and allegiance. It's a loud voice, but even that, have you ever laid in front of a waterfall and just been lulled asleep by the soothing sounds? Here again, it's loud but soothing. Again, the whole point is, listen, the whole point is the essential discipline of discipleship is listen to me. And the implication is that the churches in Asia Minor are not listening to Jesus, at least in some parts of their church life. Now, that's not hard to imagine, right? Congregations not listening to Jesus. Congregations not hearing what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Congregations listening to the latest fads, listening more to political and social agendas than Jesus. Too many churches, too many Christians were and are listening to the wrong voices. They pushed Jesus out of the center and put other things in the center. In John's day, they were uh, listening to the threatening voice of Emperor Domitian, who said, if you don't call me Lord, you're gonna die, or, uh, or uh, worse, boiled in oil, or whatever. They, they, heard, they were listening to his threatening voice, and they were listening to the seductive voices of the empire to voices that promise comfort and security through wealth and military power. They weren't, they were listening to voices that said, it's possible to confess Jesus as Lord on Sunday, but then live for idols Monday through Saturday. The voice is central. Now, the second feature about the, the voice here is the, the voice is said to give two commands. The first command is, do not be afraid, verse 17, and behold, or look, in verse 18. Now, it turns out that we obey the first by obeying the second. It's when we look that we're no longer afraid. When I'm afraid, it's because I'm not looking, or I should say, I'm not looking at the, in the right place. I'm looking at all the cultural issues. I'm looking at all the political issues. I'm looking at the rise of terrorism. I'm looking at escalating collapse of our moral order. I'm looking at the growth of addiction. I'm looking at all kinds of things out there and it's worrying me and scaring me to death. I'm not looking at Jesus, the risen and glorified Lord of life who holds the whole world in his hands. Jesus says, look to John on that prison island. Verse 18, look, I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. I'm the first and the last. That's the same thing as in the other parts of the passage where God says, I'm the alpha and the omega. The two ends of the alphabet, if God is A and Z, he's everything in between. That's Jesus. He's everything. He's the beginning, the end, and everything in between. He says, I'm the living one. You've got to keep your eyes on me. Look at me. Now think about this. It turns out that we look by listening. We see by hearing. Martin Luther once exhorted people to stick their eyes in their ears. <laughs> you will not see until you hear. And it's when you hear that you see, and when you see Jesus, like John sees him here, you're no, no longer will fear control you. The third major feature of this revelation of Jesus is the phrase, in the middle. The voice speaks from the middle, not just from above, not just from outside, but from the middle, verse 13, from the middle of the lampstands, in the middle of the churches, but as John will soon discover as this, this drama unfolds, 
Jesus speaks from the middle of other places. He speaks from the middle of everything. Like in Revelation chapter 5, we hear that the lion has triumphed. And when John turns expecting to see a lion, he saw a lamb as if slain standing in the middle of the throne of God, in the middle of the throne. Now, there's no way the lamb can be standing in the middle of the throne unless he's standing in the middle of the Almighty who sits on the throne, which means that he stands as God in the middle of everything, and this voice speaks from the middle of everything. Now, do you believe that? Does the church in our time believe that? That Jesus Christ stands in the center and he is the center. Well, sadly, I, 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 I'm afraid not. I mean, what we've done, particularly in Western Christianity, is we made it all about me. And we turned this Jesus into some kind of divine therapist so that whatever you're struggling with or feeling or hurting from, we want Jesus to come and, and sit down and and meet with us, and we want Jesus to help us be in the center of our lives. We want him to help us stay in the center, as if, as if all he wants from you is so that I can help you be all you can be and have all you can have and do, and do whatever you want to do so that you're in the middle and he's on the outside helping you stay there. That's not the gospel. But we see this on a, on a much larger scale as well. As well. Most believers and most church leaders in this country are feeling marginalized. Marginalized over against the culture. Marginalized over against the great forces of our times. Marginalized over against godless political and social systems that seem to control our lives. We're feeling marginalized. And understandingly so, the the surrounding culture doesn't care one whit about the church. We're not on the radar. And we're not even on their radar anymore. So we feel marginalized because Christians are now in a minority in this country. We feel marginalized because we feel our voices aren't heard. We feel marginalized because our beliefs and values are being attacked. We feel marginalized because we're made to look like fools in movies and in mainstream media. But listen, the crisis for us right now is not that the church is marginalized, The crisis is that we feel marginalized because, and why do we feel marginalized? Because we've forgotten that things are not as they seem. The church in our time feels marginalized because we've allowed our souls to give in to the illusions around us and we're now assessing our own worth and ministries against false centers. Listen, look, in the middle, the risen and ruling Jesus speaks from the middle And I hear Jesus saying to me and to the church in our time, you get discouraged because you get disoriented. And you get disoriented because you get distracted. You get discouraged because you get disoriented and you get disoriented because you get distracted. You've taken your eyes off of me. Other voices command more of your attention than my voice. And I think I hear Jesus saying, you think that in order to have greater influence in your city, you think you need more something more attractive than me, more concrete than me, more marketable than me, something more believable than me. And Jesus says, no, what you need is this vision of me right here. You need to see the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future, but even more so, you need to see the present moment 
in light of the unseen realities of the present, and I'm the most real thing going on. And you know me, and I'm in control. He's saying, I'm the great unseen reality of the present. Listen to me. Keep your eyes on me. Look at me. I've got the keys. I've got the keys to death and Hades. No one else has them. And if I've got the keys to death and Hades, then I have the keys to everything else. So look, listen, don't be afraid. Would you just take a moment and bow your head? And I want to invite you right now to name anything that you're afraid of, anything that, that's causing you to fear. And I want you to name it and give it to the Lord Jesus who's right here in the middle of us, right here, right now. He's not listening from far away. He's listening right beside you, before you, behind you, above you, beneath you. He's right here. Give him your fears and ask the Holy Spirit to help you see him the way John got to see him and the way John recorded that vision so we could see him too. Lord Jesus, the one thing that we, we need most is that we would see Jesus high and lifted up in all his might, in all his majesty. We need to see it when we watch our TVs. We need to see Jesus when we're in conversations with people and they give us information that causes our heart to beat faster and our minds start racing. We need to see Jesus. We need to keep this picture of him in front of us. Oh, Jesus, let us never lose sight of you. Don't, don't let us listen to other voices. As tempting and as alluring as they are, keep our minds and hearts and eyes and ears set on you. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.